Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Voices podcast. I'm your host, Kathy Tai, recording from Washington, D.C. This week is part two of my conversation with translators Gigi Zhang and Shelley Bryan on their English translation of the Legend of the Condor Heroes book series. Let's recap from last week. The Condor Heroes is the story about a young man and a young woman against a backdrop of conflicts between the Jurchen-led Jin Empire and the Song Empire in medieval China. Told in the wuxia tradition, characters are equipped with martial arts skills. They can fly across buildings and smash walls with one punch. The books are international bestsellers and have spawned many television adaptations over the years. The Condor Heroes was written by Louis Cha, whose pen name is Jin Yong. He passed away in 2018. He had become a household name across many Chinese-speaking parts of Asia, with books sold over 100 million copies worldwide. He remains one of the most famous wuxia novelists of all time. I think as long as there are novels in the world, the Chinese will probably still read Jin Yang's novels. I would be very satisfied if someone is still reading my novels after 50 or 60 years. I hope you enjoyed the second part of my conversation with translators Gigi and Shelley about translating the Condor Heroes into English. Thanks for tuning in. I remember when I was younger and then when I was reading the trilogy, like as a teenager, I felt a little bit frustrated as a teenage girl in Taiwan, because I guess at that time, it's like the age of empowerment, the age of democratization in Taiwan. But really, like you said, it's a the outdated worldview at that time, and also the traditional culture kind of shackled all these female characters. So, you know, although I do love these series, but then as a reader for the Chinese version, it did read to me at that time uh, <laughs> a little bit frustrated. I, I don't know how, Shelley, do you have any views or opinions about these female characters? Yeah, and I discussed this quite at length with Gigi while we were translating, because I did the end of the fourth book, which is where you start to get into a little more of that relationship between um, Guo Jing and Huang Long. That they, and I, I did tell Gigi I was quite frustrated, actually, with um, Lotus as a character that she seemed so fickle when I translated her into English. And yet that is really the opposite of what's intended in, in the text, that fickle should not be how she comes across to an English language reader. Because what's happening in the original is even her back and forth is a sign of her loyalty, a, a real love for Guo Jing, that she's trying her best to do what's good for him because she loves him. But when you translate it into English, it really comes across that way. And um, if you translate it just as it's written, because you don't have these same cultural assumptions that are going to be made by your English language reader. And so they're going to say, what is what is with this guy? Can't he see through this girl? She's just she's just playing games with him, toying with him because he's naive or something like that. That's how it feels when it's translated just as it's written 
on the page, if you're just looking at the surface. So if, if you're faithful in terms of just the words on the page, it goes completely against the intent of the text. And it has to do with the cultural assumptions that the different readerships are bringing to the text, that you don't have this same background of these relationships, the gender relations from history. So this was the, actually the one concern that I did have about us being an all-female team translating this book that at the end of the day, you have to acknowledge that these characters are being written from the perspective of the male gaze. And it's a very strong driving point about how these women are developed on the page, that they are idealized women. I think, Gigi, at one point, you, you described them as, as the girlfriends that every Chinese guy wants or something along that line. So I can't remember exactly your word. It was something along. Definitely. <laughs> right. So that, that, that they're, they're these fantasy girls. Um, but the fantasy, yeah, smart, the fantasy is good at cooking. That's right. And the fantasy is created by men. So we, as women, uh, female translators, I think we have this tendency to want to push back against it a little bit. And that, that's a struggle. How do you stay faithful to the original text? Do you need to present it with all of its biases or do you need to present it something a little more positive? Because at the end of the day, we did also say we want this to be the book that people are going to keep turning the pages. So in the same way, when we talk about Lotus and her fickleness. What does that back and forth, her, yes, I want you, no, I don't want you, yes, I want you, no, I don't want you. What is it actually saying? It's actually saying that she loves coaching and is trying to do what's best for him because she loves, it. even if it means it costs her something, she's willing to do that. Um, and she's trying to struggle to give him up um, because she believes that's what she's supposed to do, right, as a loving woman. So I think that we have to then Potentially, Deborah Smith has described it in some of her translations of Korean literature that sometimes you have to commit an infidelity for the sake of a greater fidelity. And I think that's what we had to decide. When do we need to commit a small infidelity for the sake of a greater fidelity? How do we maybe bend the words a little bit so that they're not quite as sticking closely to exactly what's said on the page so that we can get across the the real message, which is Lotus is loyal. Lotus is faithful. She is doing what's best for coaching. She really does love him. And so how do you kind of get that bigger message across, which is what we're trying, the text is trying to create is this image of her absolute commitment to him, not fickleness. So that was something I think we struggled with along with this question of, and, and I think I struggled with it a little more than Gigi did. I think she had a clearer vision of what she wanted to do on the question of how do you deal with the male gaze? How do you be accurately representing it and yet still create a book that people are going to want to read because that's not necessarily what people want to read today, you know? And so how do we address all of that? And maybe Gigi has a better idea because she had such a clear vision on it there. I think Lotus is really a very interesting character because although like she's depicted as really smart, clever uh, young lady in the book series, she's not very well liked. Um, and even among Chinese readers. I think men liked her. <laughs> Women don't. <laughs> Female readers less so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, yes, I, that's not, yeah, I agree. That, like, I, when I talk to my Chinese friends, no one will say, like, Huang Rong is their favorite character. I've never heard of that. I think a lot of men would say, yeah, I've heard a lot of men say, I think the thing is, it's, if, your Chinese are familiar with the series. It's very difficult to 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 think of the book without thinking of the TV adaptations that you've seen and the actresses and the actors that played them, because the the dramatization, the actors actually add so much more to the characters beyond the book. 
It's not that the book don't write for... They write well-rounded characters, but on screen, the actors actually added, like, even more to these people. So in our head, actually, we've got multiple lotuses and gorgings that exist. And I think a lot of time when people say they like X or Y, they're probably thinking whichever TV adaptations rather than who we meet in the books. Because at least if you talk to me about Guojing, probably in my head it pops up like Huang Ruhua and Zhang Jiling first before I come to the sort of slightly fussy-faced Guojing from the book. Yeah, I, yeah, that's true. And which is why I can't watch the 2008 adaptation with Hu Ge in it because he's too good looking. I don't. I see him as Yang Guo. I don't see him as Guo Jing. He just he is not Guo Jing in my head. He just can't physically be Guo Jing. Sorry, <laughs> but yeah. Regarding Lotus, also I have actually heard in Shanghai maybe some some of my friends there who the female friends who actually like Lotus. Um, And it's quite an interesting thing because I think she is supposed to be an idealized depiction of the you got this this kind of um, this is who she's supposed to be. And so so even though they may not like the role, I think there is that idealized femininity from from that particular culture, which I think is also very telling because, again, you don't have. It's just like if, if people talk about knowing Chinese culture, I mean, or knowing China, China watchers, I, I hate these phrases because what is Chinese? It's so big. There's no knowing China. There's, you can know parts of it. You can know aspects of it. You can, you and, and not even, you shouldn't know it as an observer. You should just be living as a part of it, really, if you really want to understand anything about a place. But you have the, this vast thing that is, if you want to say China, but what is it to be a Chinese woman? Again, you're going to have such different... Um, views of that. And when we talk about um, Lotus, I think she is actually a very specific type of Chinese woman who is idealized from a very specific place and a a part of Chinese culture. And I do think that that's something that still women who live in that region, even today, feel um, a certain pressure maybe to be a part of that idealized woman, you know, femininity. And even if they don't exactly like that expectation, it's something that's very relatable and so I do. I have heard a lot of uh, women from that area who've talked about Huang Rong being quite relatable for them. Since you are on the topic of uh, female characters, maybe this is a, a little bit tougher question because there aren't that many female characters in this book series. Who is your favorite female character? For me, it would be Cyclone Mei, Mei Chao Feng. Partly because she is the only person that we get a full backstory of. And because that was also the first chapter of the second volume, it's one of the first big chunk that I tackled. And it was her own narrative in first person voice, whereas the rest of the book is in third person. So I've started translating and I got 30, 40 pages of her, her thinking about her past. Very naturally, I became very engaged with her. And I think she really stands out for a lot of readers as well, because because of this, these 30 pages. Whereas on TV, you might not even, you know, she kind of disappears halfway through, so you might not actually think so much about her. But in a book, she really stands out because of the, the different narrative method. So we get to know her from when she was 
a girl to all the way to adulthood and we experience her ups and downs and her romantic awakenings and everything else with her in the short space of time that she is in the novel and it's hard not to like her as a result. Shelley, do you also is she also your favorite? I would say she's my favorite female character also, but probably my relationship to most of the female characters is probably more accurate accurately described as pity than actually liking. You have a lot of sympathy for these female characters. I do anyway. I have a lot of sympathy for them, but you don't always like them. And Cyclone May was the most likable for me, although you kind of kind of also hate her sometimes. I mean, at moments she's built in to be to be hated a little bit, right? Um, but that's kind of the point, isn't it? That's kind she's of, the villain. Yeah, that's kind of the point. And and it and it's it's again, it's one of those things that when you when you say that, you think, wow, she's I like her and I hate her. And that's that's in itself pretty sad, actually, um, when you think about it. Uh, at least for me, it, it's it's pretty sad what that implies on on the bigger scale too. You know that she's a. Uh, but she is definitely, I think, one of the more complex and interesting characters. I do think that Huang Long is actually also a complex and interesting character, even though kind of find her irritating sometimes as well. <laughs> to be, if I'm really honest about it, maybe she was, especially when I was translating. I'm thinking, man, this is really not working in English. This is, it's already problematic in Chinese, and it's really not working <laughs> in English. And I, I think, I think Gigi. It's probably too polite to say that I whined about it, but I will admit it. I did whine about it a little bit. Oh no, what are we going to do with this character? She's driving me crazy. So that a lot of the relationships with the characters was like that, and and yeah. Cyclone May. I whine about them all okay, the time. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> this is not just me. I do, I don't find Gigi whiny about them at all, but I am sometimes. <laughs> but but um, but Cyclone May did not actually feel that way. And again, I was not the one who translated those more difficult passages, but she didn't. She didn't feel as frustrating to me as some of the other female characters do. You, you know, she wasn't. She was. She doesn't have the fickleness to her. She's more decisive and she's more assertive, which, well, that makes her the villain, doesn't it? <laughs> At the end of the day, so that that's kind of sad in itself too. So there's a lot of sympathy I, that I feel for the female characters, and in many ways, also makes you really thankful that we're born when we were, even if we still have a lot a long way to go. Man, it's it's better than being. Then, exactly. <laughs> That's how I, I, I. So I like Madame Ying Ingu because I also feel like she's very similar to Cyclone May in a way that she has more agency of herself. She knows what she wants, and then she takes things like kind of over herself, and then she tries to control her own fate. So I, I yeah, I agree with you. I think it's it's because you know we live in this. Era that we can resonate a little bit more with these stronger female characters in a way. On that, I would love to shift the topic a little bit to talk about、um, kind of a recurring theme in my own personal humble opinion of identity crisis in this book series. Yang Kang was raised by Jurchens, but he is Han Chinese, and Guo Jing was raised by Mongolians. Pretty much, like he spent like most of his days and years in Mongolia, and he's also ethnically Han Chinese. And so, when Yang Kang decided to kind of stick with the Jurchens, and he's viewed as traitor, and so obviously Yang Kang Guojing's like how they're being perceived because of their actions are very different. But in other book series, in Tianlong Babu, Qiao Feng also didn't know that he was, I think, Liao Ren. Like he also thought he 
was Han Chinese. And to a certain ex- extent, Shu Jian, Chou Lu, Chen Jialuo, and Tianlong, right? So, so there's always this kind of, am I Han Chinese? Am I a ethnic minority? So like, what is, why do you think the identity crisis theme is a recurring theme? But I love these twists, right? Because it makes the stories very like fascinating because it adds another layer of complexity. Is it because, you know, uh, these are the times of chaos because there were a lot of conflicts in the, the central plain, uh, Zhongyuan. What's your take and why do you think there are these sort of recurring themes and on the identity crisis issue? I think that when we put the series into the historical context of when it was being written, it also um, helps to, to bring a little light on that because there was a larger conversation about Chinese-ness going on at the time, and it's kind of still going on. I'm sure I'm sure we've all heard it at some point from somebody is, hey, you're Chinese, how come you don't speak Chinese well? Maybe to your children, for instance, it's been said or something, or as if you're not Chinese, if you don't speak Chinese a certain way. And what does it mean to be Chinese is still a question today, but it was a very big question at the time of writing of this series. And it was, you know, being discussed quite broadly. And it had been for, I guess, I guess nearly half a century by this time that it's been, you know, several decades of this discussion going on defining Chineseness and what does it mean to be Chinese and so forth. And and it's interesting because even today you will hear the phrase banana, right? You're yellow on the outside and white on the inside. And that's a derogatory term that's used by the Chinese community to talk about a certain type of Chinese person. And they'll, I'll joke and I'll say, if, if someone can be a banana, I guess that means I'm an egg. People think that's praise. Me being an egg is praise, but someone being a banana is not. So I'm not a traitor if I identify more with Chineseness, um, because this is where I've lived all of my adult life. I'm not, a, I'm not seen as a traitor to my race, but if you were to do the other way around and identify more with Western culture, for instance, that's seen as traitorous. Um, so I think that this is an issue that even today is still very, so like you were describing, the, the, if a character identifies with Han Chinese, that's okay, no matter what you were born, but you shouldn't be born Han Chinese and identify with where you were raised. That's that's not okay. So So that's actually an issue that is recurring, I think, in the series, but it's also still being worked out for us today, you know, in, in the ways that we see things. So people will laugh quite frequently. I get this response. People laugh and say, oh, Shelly, you're very Chinese. And it's praise to say that. Looking at my white face, look into my blue eyes and say, you're very Chinese. And they think that that's praise. But if they were to say to you, you're very Western, that would not be praise. If they were to say you're more like a Laowai or whatever, you know, or here in Singapore, they say you gay ang mean fake white person, you know, using this kind of phrase, so so that it's an insult for a Chinese person to act white, whatever that means, act white. Um, but for me to be Chinese is praise. Um, and I think that, that that issue, the reason it is a recurring theme is because in, in the books is because it's a recurring theme in the world in which of Chineseness still today, and it's even today still a, a topic of discussion, but much more so back at the time of writing. Gigi, what's your take on this? Partly, it probably stemmed from Jin Yong himself, because he does he did grow up in a very turbulent era, both sort of in terms of international politics. You know, nineteen twenty four. So he grew up during the war. He was, you know, a teenager in the forties, in the late thirties and forties. And at the same time, at that point, you know, there are all these different 
ideas of how to um, reinvigorate China, whether as a culture, as a sort of political entity, all these sort of things were going on. And, you know, as a young man at that time, he's definitely in involved or knowledgeable of what's going on. And then he got moved to Hong Kong. And as someone from Jiangnan to Hong Kong, and then he lived for the rest of life there, he is uprooted. You know, he's been uprooted from where he where his family's been for centuries. And in Hong Kong, that debate continues because it was a British colony then and Chinese were definitely at when he went there, he was definitely second class citizen or less. Even when he made money, he still, you know, he can never get into the, the ruler class of colonial Hong Kong. And then at the time, you know, he's in Hong Kong, he's not exactly mainland China. And then there is also Taiwan wasn't talking to anyone. So everyone was in a way, in some ways, isolated from each other. But they're all Chinese. They all read and write the same language. They can physically speak to each other. And I think that whether he's intentionally wanting to write about identity crisis or just purely purely use it as a dramatic device, that's debatable because we really don't know. Well, even if he said what he... Even if he said in later stage, oh, I did it intentionally or not. Who knows when he was writing it, because when he was writing these stories, he was mostly to sell newspaper. You know, it's not he didn't set out to write a big philosophical track about about identity crisis and who who we are or who what Chinese is. But I think this is something that has a dramatic function and that tapped into the reader's... Um, I guess, own thinking. I mean, readers were also reading these books for entertainment. They didn't read it for to explore who they are. So, but the but because of the 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 sort of deeper level of of discussion beyond you know the fighting and the punching, I think that's why these stories have legs that you know. For, it, it was written in the mid nineteen fifties, and it's still loved and read by people today. You know, if you look at Legends of the Condor Hero, they had what seven or eight TV and film TV ad adaptations. So pretty much every ten years, you get a new one for 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 that generation. And I would also say this kind of identity crisis, as in who raised you and who you are born to, are in conflict, is also a very very old Chinese dramatic trope. So. If you look at something like Zhao Shi um the orphan of Zhao, the orphan himself was raised by the guy who killed his parents. And the ending of it is that the, the orphan has to decide whether he would be, he will repay that filial, lo filial loyalty to the guy who raised him, or he should revenge the guy who raised him because he killed his parents whom he's never known. So that kind of conflict, if you put it into Yang Kang or put it into Guo Jing or the other characters like Xiao Feng, Xiao Feng, it is the same, you know. Do I work with or continue to be with the people who help me or am I supposed to think about all the many generations that came before me that brought my existence, into, who brought me into this world? Who, what's my allegiance to? I thought this is an interesting kind of issue is because 
when we were studying history, it's always Han Chinese centered. So, you know, whenever there's, say, Mongolia came in or Jin, you know, the Jurchens, or like later uh, the Manchurians came uh, to conquer the, the central plain. So it's always about, it's like the non-Chinese. So they basically call them Waizu, right? So non-Chinese, yeah, yeah, like they yeah. kind of invade. Shoulu. Barbarians yeah, they, they invaded. <laughs> Maiyi. Maiyi, yes, exactly. They invaded the, 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 the central plan full of culture and all that. So I think because it has always been so Han Chinese centered. So I think this makes the series of featuring talking to different characters who were Mongolians, who were Jurchens, even Yang Kang's stepfather. I thought that's interesting because you rarely uh, see you know, events happening from kind of their perspectives when the Genghis Khan's army, you know, attacks Samarkand. Like you don't really read that um, from the Chinese history because it's all based in who conquered Beijing, right? So who take over Zhongyuan. But I'd also say that the so-called the invaders and the um, whoever they're writing, writing the history, I can, in a way, almost see why the invaders get so kind of tarnished because it is a threat of a way of life. Because you know the the sort of central part of China, you know, isn't people don't ride horses; they farm. Whereas the people that comes in, they are all horse riders, and majority are nomads. That as much as clashes of ethnicities and language, I, I would say it's actually clash, clashes of ways of life. So everyone is looking at all oh, this fertile land. We want to come in. Um, whereas the people in the fertile land, I was like, oh my god, you ride horses and you charge around. We don't do that. And obviously, there are different languages. And and if you sort of place yourself back at back in those time as a, as a common, as you don't even have to be an official, just just a little common people. It is quite frightening that contrast and differences. But yes, it is quite. I mean, there are also academics who who, who complains about Jin Yong for not writing the um, the outsiders in a more human and sympathetic way. They they just tend to sort of dips in and out and appears and and get a lot of stereotypes <laughs> work brush apart from the main Genghis Khan and a few a few of them who got a bigger role. They're more human, and the rest of them are kind of like oh. You know, foreign invaders killed. <laughs> Pretty much, that's it. I mean, there are a lot more really interesting things we can talk about, like Ji Young's books or the series, like in general. But I think we're almost at time. So, if I may ask, after this like super exciting project, what are you working on currently and next? Okay, I've started translating Return, the first volume of the Return of the Condor Heroes. So that's what I'm working on right now. So when do you think the whole return of the uh, Condor Heroes will be done? Four or five years from now. <laughs> so so we are still <laughs> aiming a volume a year. Currently, we're only looking at the first volume <laughs> of the next novel. So, so yes. I have something to look forward to. Uh, how about you, Shelley? I've actually just wrapped up a lengthy academic book on the history of rice in China, and I've got three books that are currently underway. One is Huang Ruiyun's Fables, I guess you'd call them, and then another is a novel about Tibet, which I'm about to start on, and 
then the third is a an academic book uh, on modern Confucian philosophy. Interesting, modern Confucius philosophy. Okay, hot cool. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough. It's it's tough. It's um, hardcore. So, <laughs> yeah, it's hardcore. You're right. So that's 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 very true. <laughs> That's exciting. Okay, so at the end of the episode, we usually would ask guests to kind of share the self care tips, or you know, if you have any recommendations to just blow off the steam or help relax yourself from super busy day of work. Shelly, you want to go ahead? No, um, sure. So I mean, so I like to obviously reading in the past was always what I did to unwind, but now because almost my entire day is spent reading. I find it gets a little bit hard on my eyes. I do spend um, some time listening to audiobooks, maybe go for a walk and listen to an audiobook, watch a little bit of TV, but usually it's just old reruns of things that are familiar, so I don't have to think too much. You know, It's more like that. Um, but I, I also do wood carving, so I do a little bit of hands-on work. Just to, It's just a hobby. It's not nothing a big deal, but just something I do to just as an outlet. Um, so I think any kind of hobby like that, that you, so particularly if it's something you can do with your hands, maybe a little physical activity after sitting in front of a page writing all day um, is good for me. How about you, Gigi? I watch a lot of films and TV, anything and everything, really. I'm not that picky. Um, partly it's actually quite helpful. There's There are always quite a lot of lines or idea or characterization to steal or or you see what people are doing badly that you can avoid the pitfalls that you can avoid you know there's no, no nothing good or bad bad tv shows are sometimes extremely instructive if you're in the line of dealing with fictional characters i should read more but then because I face the computer and works all day. I kind of sometimes, that's why I, I tend to watch films and TV. Feels still instructive, but actually less less harsh on the eyes. And I also, because of the novels, I started doing Tai Chi. Um, so I'm still practicing Wudang um, Chen. So, so I do that every so often. Do you feel the tea? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you sweat like that is... No, tomorrow you just don't even know you got pulled on, or that you, you you've got that much water in your body that can come out in in just fifteen minutes uh, when you do it right. And I also because I was translating quite a lot of um Chinese classical Chinese theatre, so Xi Chu. Um, so I also started doing. I've got a teacher from one of the Chinese opera troops to teach me flute. Kunopera flute, kundi. So I'm kind of tormenting my neighbors um, playing flute every day as well. Wow, very interesting indeed. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share this wonderful journey with us, the process, and then also personal experiences, opinions, and just uh, the book for us. I, I think this has been a just a truly pleasant and it's totally a pleasure you know to read the books and then to be able to talk to you and i just want to thank you one more time for taking the time to share and spend the time with us thank you so much Gigi and shelly
have been listening to the New Voices podcast with me, Kathy Tai. This episode was edited by Megan Cattell. Opening music is by Wu Fei. Closing sounds, Molly Hua by April Zhu. Follow us on Twitter at New Voices and on Instagram at New Voices underscore Network. Our website newvoices.com. Support our activities, events, online magazine, this podcast, and more via Patreon. Patrons are invited to play an active role in our community. More information is available on patreon.com/newvoices. Until next time.